Support for Living on Earth comes from listeners like you. Please make a donation online at LOE.org or call me at 617-629-3638. And thanks. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Attorney General of New York State is investigating if coal-related companies have violated laws by failing to tell investors of the risks global warming presents to their businesses. It may have a chilling effect on investments in coal. What we're seeing in this instance is the effect of climate change on financial markets, on investor confidence, on who bears the risks, and all of these questions are brand new. Also, pollution is being linked to a sharp reduction in the number of baby boys being born in the far north. One place in Greenland has only girl babies. And the passing of a parrot who taught humans about the nature of life. When Alex spoke, a member of a species more closely related to dinosaurs than to humans was talking with us. We'll have those stories and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation and Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Somerville, Massachusetts, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In certain villages in northern Greenland, something is completely out of whack. Only girls are being born. These reports from villages near the U.S. Air Force Base in Thule are now being explored by scientists. But studies conducted a few years ago now coming to light show that in other Arctic regions, the sex ratios of babies are also out of kilter. In 2004, the Arctic Monitoring and Assessment Program found a correlation between exposure to PCBs and shifts in the sex ratios of babies born to indigenous mothers living in the northern reaches of Russia. PCBs and other persistent organic chemicals, such as pesticides, travel from industrial countries up the food chain into the blubber of marine mammals. Lars Otto Ryerson is the executive secretary for the Arctic Monitoring and Assessment Program. His group conducted the study as part of ongoing research on pollution, diet, and health in the region. Yeah, the most interesting and surprising uh, result was that we saw a change in the sex ratio that we could um, correlate to the levels of PCB in the mother's blood. And that we saw if the mothers have more than 4 microgram PCB per liter in her blood, the average was changed to 2 girls per boy in the population that we studied. And um, that's a quite dramatic change from a normal situation where there are more boys than girls born. Now, when you say more boys than girls born, how many more boys than girls? Yeah, I think normally, statistically, there is 1.05 or 1.1 boy per girl. That's the normal average. In this population, though, it's 2.0 girls per boy. Yeah, when the mothers have these levels of PCB. And we also saw that the birth came earlier and that the, the weight on the newborn babies that had the highest levels were lower than the normal. Tell me how you went about collecting your data. How did you find your subjects? Who, who, who were these people? Based on the study we've done in Greenland and Canada, we are focusing mainly on the indigenous people living off the marine food chain because we have seen that the, these people have the highest levels because of the lifestyle. And we work together with the indigenous people to, to collect the samples over a year's period to get enough statistical data. And we have continued after that first report published in, in 2004 and the new data just confirmed what we saw earlier. So what we're looking into now is to try to understand what is the mechanism behind this. 
Now, looking at your report here, I'm, I'm just struck by the apparent effects that PCBs have on the sex ratio of children uh, and the way it changes. The chart that you have there, I'm looking at page 175. Okay. The chart that you have there shows that as you increase exposure to PCBs, at first you get way more boy babies than girl babies. But then as you go higher, get above 4 micrograms uh, per, per liter of blood, you get way more girl babies. Yeah, I can see that. And um, the scientists do not have any good explanation of why it looks like you have a stimulation in the, in, at the lower levels. And then you've got the opposite effect when you go beyond that level. So what we're doing now is that we're looking into the um, circumpolar Arctic to see, do we see any similar effects uh, in Canada or Greenland? How might PCBs do this, do you think? Well, it could be um, what we call the mimic of the hormones that you early in the pregnancy have, um, that some of these pesticides may mimic testosterone or estrogen that's uh, documented from science. So that might be what's occurring. But that's too early to say for sure what's the mechanism. Now, PCBs are concentrated in the Arctic and concentrated in marine mammals. But what might this mean for the rest of us around the world who have exposure to PCBs, but at a much lower level? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, PCB is all over. It's not only in the Arctic. You have it all over the world in the terrestrial and marine food chain and freshwater. So um, from laboratory studies, you know that PCB may affect reproduction, may affect on cancer and immune system. But I think it's very difficult to document that um, on the population level. You have to do very detailed studies like the one we did in Chukotka area. How have the governments uh, of the Arctic responded to your research? Well, they have responded um, very active. I think uh, you have got the Stockholm Convention in place to a far extent due to the work we have done in the Arctic over the years. And the Stockholm Convention is? That is an international agreement among countries to um, reduce the production and use and discharge of persistent organics. And I think that's what you need is actions to clean up uh, the use of PCB and the old waste sites of PCB and other of these chemicals. That's uh, important actions to be taken. Lars Otto Ryerson is Executive Secretary for the Arctic Monitoring and Assessment Program. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you. For a link to the Arctic Pollution Study, visit our website, LOE.org. Japan has been hit hard by earthquakes over the years, most recently by a 6.8 trembler in northwestern Japan that claimed 11 lives and shut down the world's largest nuclear power plant. So Japan has a strong incentive to figure out how to predict earthquakes, and it's making some progress. The government has developed a sophisticated earthquake warning system that can sound an alarm a few precious seconds before the most destructive waves of an earthquake hit. Spectrum Radio's Gene Kumagai has our story. September in Japan always begins the same way, Disaster Prevention Day. Across the country, school children don protective headgear and practice taking cover under sturdy desks, public safety workers conduct mock searches and rescues, and medical personnel attend to the foe injured. This annual ritual underscores a simple fact of life for the Japanese. Earthquakes happen. The country experiences more than a 1,000 earthquakes each year. Most of these are too small to do real damage. But major quakes have claimed hundreds of thousands of lives in Japan over the centuries. 
this morning at first light, it was impossible to detect the trauma which has hit the city of Kobe, once renowned for its style and its beauty. Just before dawn on January 17, 1995, a magnitude 7.2 earthquake flattened large sections of the city of Kobe. 6,400 people perished, and many thousands more were injured. Naoko Onda was living outside Kobe when the ground started to move. Uh, I was at home and reading a book uh, to be ready to go to work. Suddenly, from the um, bottom, under the floor, I feel like going up, up, up a little bit, and suddenly left and side a big shake. And I was not able to stand up, and the window to go to the balcony was open, even though it's been locked. After the Kobe quake, government officials decided to create an earthquake early warning network. The concept is simple. An earthquake generates several types of waves, which travel at different speeds. Non-destructive P waves, P for primary, radiate out from an earthquake rupture at about four miles per second. The much stronger S, or secondary waves, which cause most of the damage, only travel at about two miles per second. So the further you are from the earthquake's epicenter, the greater the difference between the arrivals of the P and S waves, and the longer it takes the strong tremors to reach you. To detect those waves, the Japanese installed a large network of seismic stations throughout the country. Data from the seismic stations is routed to the Japan Meteorological Agency, or JMA, in Tokyo. The JMA Control Center is a large room filled with computers, large flat-screen monitors, and other equipment. At one end, a bank of screens displays various types of seismic data. Osamu Kamagaichi is JMA's senior coordinator for international earthquake and tsunami information. Uh, earthquake early warning is a fully automated uh, system. Uh, otherwise, we cannot uh, disseminate the timely uh, information to the public. As Kamagaichi talks, the automated system emits a warning. It's a false alarm, and so the warning won't travel beyond the control center. But in the event of a real earthquake, additional information would soon follow, and an official alert would then be issued. At most, the advance warning amounts to mere seconds. That may not seem like a lot of time, but for equipment controlled by a microprocessor, it's usually long enough to react. For example, elevators tend to jam between floors when strong shaking sends their cables swinging. But with a 10-second lead time, a moving elevator could stop at the closest floor and open its doors. In fact, all 227,000 elevators in Japan must now be equipped with control systems that accept the JMA signals. The alerts could also trigger automated responses at power and chemical plants, computer and communications networks, trains, and hospitals. Masanori Kanazawa and his orange tabby cat live in one of the dozen or so apartment complexes in Tokyo that provide the alerts to their residents. During a recent demonstration, he was sitting on his living room couch reading the newspaper when the alarm began to sound. As the pre-recorded voice counts down the seconds to the earthquake's arrival, Kanazawa jumps to his feet, pads into the kitchen to check that the gas stove isn't on, and then heads for the front door, presumably to safety. 
Kanazawa says all of his friends now want an earthquake warning system too. After I bought this apartment, I told my friends about the earthquake early warning system, and they said that they envy me. They really think it's safer to have this system in the house. This fall, JMA plans to begin broadcasting the alerts to the general public via television and radio. Eventually, the alerts may also be issued to cell phones, beepers, and other mobile devices. Since Japan began developing its seismic network, a number of other countries have started to follow suit, including Mexico, Taiwan, and Turkey. Thomas Heaton is a seismologist at the California Institute of Technology. He believes any earthquake-prone region could benefit from such a system. Earthquakes are a phenomena that take us by surprise. They do just tremendous damage, change the state of everything in just a few brief moments from peacetime into total and utter chaos. One of the challenges is to try to deal with that chaos in some uh, new creative ways. We think the key to that is having good information as quickly as possible. In other words, the right kind of information can save lives. For Living on Earth, I'm Jean Kumagai. Jean Kumagai reports for Spectrum Radio, the broadcast edition of IEEE Spectrum Magazine. Coming up, New York State launches an investigation into the financing of coal power plants. Keep listening to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Global warming is topping the agenda as the United Nations General Assembly opens in New York on September 26. And later in the week in Washington, President Bush is hosting diplomats from the world's major economies for a global warming conference. All this comes as U.N. negotiators prepare to meet in Bali in December to hash out what might replace the Kyoto Protocol, which expires in 2012. Kyoto calls for the rich industrialized nations to reduce their emissions first and help developing countries constrain emissions in the future. Living on Earth's Washington correspondent Jeff Young takes a look at what's at stake for the meetings in New York and Washington. The United Nations says its one-day event will be the largest ever meeting of world leaders on climate change, with more than 70 heads of state. UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon knows the clock is ticking on the Kyoto Protocol, and reaching a new agreement will take time. He's not happy with the pace of talks so far. We need to move fast and reach a bold agreement by 2009 so that it can enter into force by the end of 2012. After the U.N. meeting, climate action moves to Washington, where President Bush has asked the leaders of the world's major economies to the White House. Bush says he, too, wants to help forge a new climate framework. So my proposal is this. By the end of next year, America and other nations will set a long-term global goal for reducing greenhouse gases. To help develop this goal, the United States would convene a series of meetings of nations that produced most greenhouse gas emissions including nations with rapidly growing economies like India and China. It was a surprising invitation from an administration that takes a lot of heat on global warming. Critics say the White House ignores the science on climate change. But the president's top science advisor begs to differ. John Marburger directs the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy. Marburger says the president agrees with the scientific consensus that the climate is changing and that human activity is most likely the cause. 
there's no question that the president himself has embraced the appropriate scientific findings uh, regarding climate change almost from the beginning of the administration. He says the Earth is warming uh, and uh, we're producing too much CO2. We need to take responsibility for our emissions. And he understands it. The policies are being made in a context of a much higher level of understanding of the science than I think most people are aware. Is the White House stance on climate change changing? Massachusetts Democratic Senator John Kerry says he doubts it. Is it better that they are finally talking the language of saying we accept the science or we see global climate change? Yes, of course. This has been a seven-year struggle with this administration to get them where they should have been seven years ago. So I'm not going to jump up and down over the fact of the conference until we see what the outcome is, obviously. Kerry co-sponsors a bill before Congress that would put a mandatory cap on U.S. carbon emissions. He says most of the world's developed countries already limit CO2, and he thinks binding mandatory reductions should be the basis for the next international agreement. Kerry worries that the White House conference's emphasis on voluntary measures could make it tougher for the U.N. to get deeper carbon cuts. There is a concern about this White House undermining efforts on a global basis. They've done that everywhere they've been. Uh, this administration has been a rigorous opponent of responsible action on global climate change. Officials at the White House Council on Environmental Quality were not available for an interview. The council's spokesperson offered a written statement that says, not only does this process have the support of the G8 leaders, but we have the support of the UN Secretary General and the head of the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. White House science advisor Marburger also defends the U.S. approach to climate. People have been hung up on this issue of whether it's happening or not or whether there should be caps or what the targets should be. And the U.S. has just gone ahead and invested in these technologies. And I, I feel more comfortable about actions that the U.S. has taken than I do about the, much of the rest of the world because we are investing in new energy technologies, which is what is necessary. Marburger says sharing new energy technology will draw countries like China into a climate agreement. But Elliot Deringer at the Pew Center on Climate Change says mandatory carbon cuts would do more to actually get the clean energy technology into use. The White House has used terms like aspirational, bottom-up, pledge and review. All of those mean voluntary. What is now uh, come to fore is really sharply contrasting visions of the future climate framework. Will it be built primarily on voluntary actions or will it entail some form of binding commitments? The coming week could show which path world leaders want to take. For Living on Earth, I'm Jeff Young in Washington. You can hear more of Jeff Young's interview with President Bush's top science advisor at our website, LOE.org. Now for an international perspective, we turn to Jennifer Morgan, who is an advisor to the German government and director of the climate change program for the British advocacy group E3G. The United States and China are the largest emitters of global warming gases, so a lot of the upcoming negotiations are focused on those two countries, the U.S., which repudiated Kyoto, and China, which has ratified Kyoto, but is not bound under it to cap emissions. I asked Jennifer Morgan to explain the position of China and its president, Hu Jintao. My understanding of the Chinese position is that they very much recognize their responsibility in causing climate change and are ready to act to 
curb their emissions, but that they don't think that they should have to take on the same type of commitments as developed countries should. They are still working through um, raising people out of poverty, etc., and their per capita emissions are much lower than um, the West. So they're very clear messages. We want to do more and do it under the UN and not under any framework that's competing with it, but we're not ready to take on a national cap, um, but we're ready to curb our emissions. So how does WHO's position now uh, contrast to the stance taken by the United States and what the U.S. is saying it'd like to see out of China? Well, the U.S., does not differentiate between itself, or I should say the Bush administration, does not differentiate between itself and China in the level of ambition or effort that each should do. In other words, the Bush administration does not seem to feel that it has any greater responsibility because it has historical emissions than China. So what Bush seems to want to do is invite everybody to come and pledge to do something in a non-UN format um, versus Hu Jintao, who's saying we want to do more, but we want to do it in a multilateral framework. And I think besides the Bush administration, what I sense is a, a feeling of consensus that We know we all need to do our fair share, and developing countries, including China, have used those words. And we need a plan. We need a mandate. We need a serious negotiation in order to crack that, and that needs to start in Bali. So how does the United States fit into all these meetings and ultimately the meeting in Bali? What kind of consensus can emerge given uh, the position that the Bush administration has been taking? Well, it is a tremendous challenge uh, for other countries um, sitting at a negotiating table with an administration that they know really hasn't fundamentally changed its opposition to reducing its emissions, but is still in power for 18 more months. While they look at the array of initiatives in the United States, from governors to senators to even what presidential candidates are saying, and figure out how they start negotiations with the Bush administration at the table, knowing that those negotiations will end after that administration is out of power. And my experience in these negotiations is that those countries will need to come together. Uh, Europe will need to build partnerships and alliances with the big developing countries and Japan in order to overcome Bush administration opposition, because we may or most likely will be facing a situation in Bali where we have a unified world that can bring breakthroughs. And the question for President Bush is, is he ready to stand up and block that? Now, for people who don't pay close attention to diplomatic uh, uh, matters, this sounds all very abstruse. In other words, what's going to happen in Bali is perhaps an agreement to have negotiations to keep talking. Uh, What's really at stake in Bali? We face a very short time frame where we have to shift trillions of dollars of investment from very high-carbon-intensive coal and oil uh, into renewable energy, energy efficiency, 
uh, zero emission technologies. And in order to do that, the market needs very clear signals. They need to know that industrialized countries are going to cut their emissions dramatically and that developing countries are also going to start changing their development paths to do it in a lower carbon way. What's at stake at Bali really is a signal that that is truly going to happen in the next two years, that countries are serious about negotiating those types of, of cuts and that they're going to do it in a specific time frame and that they have a certain level of ambition. The other thing that will hopefully come out of Bali is a clear signal that says we cannot go over a certain temperature threshold. We cannot increase our global temperature above 2 degrees Celsius or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit because it's too risky. And we're ready to join in and change the way that we do business in order to avoid those impacts. Jennifer Morgan is director of the Climate Change Program for the British NGO E3G and an advisor to the German government. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Attorney General of New York, Andrew Cuomo, has subpoenaed five energy companies, AES Corporation, Dominion Resources Incorporated, XL Energy, Dynegy Incorporated, and Peabody Energy. Mr. Cuomo suggests that their intent to build new coal-fire power plants could pose undisclosed financial risk to shareholders in light of global climate change. With us, to put it into perspective, is Patrick Parento, professor of law at Vermont Law School. Professor Parento, what does New York state security law have to do with climate change? First of all, the, the New York securities law is called the Martin Act. It's a 1921 statute, uh, and it's an act that uh, former Attorney General, now Governor Elliot Spitzer, used very aggressively with Wall Street in the whole Enron scandal era uh, to press corporations to reveal a variety of liabilities and risks associated with the way they were doing business, all all in the nature of protecting investors. And of course, with uh, New York State, one of the largest investors in the stock market is the State Employees Union, the pension plan, which is billions of dollars. So the Martin Act has been on the books for a very long time. A variety of attorneys general have used it. And now, Andrew Cuomo, uh, is bringing it to bear on on all this uh, risk associated with climate change. What does Attorney General Cuomo think that he needs to investigate here? Um, how might investors have been, well, defrauded? Well, here's how it could work. Suppose the Congress enacts McCain-Lieberman, which will uh, establish a national, what's called a cap-and-trade program, and further suppose that Congress does not grandfather any coal plants. Now what happens is the companies that are operating existing plants and building new coal plants, let's say, they typically rely on being able to pass on to the ratepayers the costs of building these facilities and operating these facilities. But there's a doctrine called the prudence doctrine which says if the additional costs that are imposed could have been anticipated by the utilities, they cannot pass those costs on to consumers. In other words, the shareholders uh, will absorb those costs. That's the concern. How far might this investigation go back in history? For example, Peabody Coal Company was a private company up until 
sometime in 2001, they had an initial public offering of stock on the scale of about a half a billion dollars. An initial public offering of stock, by the way, that came shortly after the White House Energy Task Force announced that there would be a big press for coal. To what extent might Peabody Coal face sanctions from Attorney General Cuomo if in that offering they hadn't talked about the threat of climate change? If this subpoena and the investigation that goes with it uncovers information that the company officials knew at the time they went public and that information was not disclosed, then the the target company, whether it's Peabody or somebody else, they better be very careful uh, in the way that they respond, the information that they disclose. In many ways, the, the law punishes acts of omission just as severely as acts of commission. We've seen what happens to corporate managers who fail to fully appreciate these laws that govern corporate accounting and and securities handling, so they better be very careful. A a spokesperson for Peabody Coal has said that the Cuomo subpoenas are outrageous and said that the legal system was designed to protect, not harass, those such as Peabody who are providing clean energy solutions for America. Uh, In his view, Attorney General Cuomo is on a witch hunt. Your response? That sounds like uh, somebody who has something to hide, frankly. It would be far more prudent for Peabody spokespersons to say, our books are open. When you hear terms like, this is a witch hunt, and he's on a crusade or whatever, it suggests to me that, that maybe Cuomo's onto something here. So we're at the beginning of something here? We're in the middle of something? We're getting towards the end of something? We're at the, the beginning of the beginning. Climate change is truly a transformative issue in every sense of the word. It's going to transform law, institutions, economies, governmental relationships, everything. And what we're seeing in this instance is the effect of climate change on financial markets, on investor confidence, on who bears the risks. And all of these questions are brand new for us, at this scale anyway. We just simply haven't faced anything like climate change. And it's just going to permeate throughout our entire uh, governmental institutions and the the market as well. Patrick Paranto is senior counsel of the Environmental and Natural Resources Law Clinic and a professor of law at Vermont Law School. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you, Steve. In a related story, 22 institutional investors and activists, ranging from environmental defense to the Kentucky State Treasurer, have filed a petition with the Federal Securities and Exchange Commission asking that publicly traded companies be required to disclose financial risks from climate change. Just ahead, name that shark. The leading environmental group opens the bidding for naming new species. But first, this cool fix for a hot planet from Mitra Taj. When it comes to the carbon-emitting activity of driving, an Internet startup is betting we care as much about our warming planet as we do our destinations. Go Loco has teamed up with the online social networking site, Facebook, to help passengers and drivers find each other. Members throughout the country post information about upcoming trips, look at where others are going, arrange ride shares, and lighten their carbon footprints. The Department of Transportation says 86% of Americans drive to work alone, and for every mile driven, the average passenger car sends nearly a pound of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere. Go Loco hopes to make carpooling, not just to work, but to shopping centers, sporting events, and concerts, fun. 
members can check out the pictures, interests, and riding histories of their potential car mates before working out the details of the ride. Sharing the 56 miles from Cambridge, Massachusetts to Providence, Rhode Island with Rima, a Beirut native who likes jazz and watching South Park, will save the driver $13 and spare the atmosphere 50 pounds of CO2. After every login, GoLogo tells members, known as OLOs, how many pounds of carbon dioxide they've saved to date. By sharing rides and getting closer to one another, OLOs get closer to slowing climate change. That's this week's cool fix for a hot planet. I'm Mitra Taj. If you or someone you know has a cool fix for a hot planet, please let us know. Call our listener line at 800-218-9988. That's 800-218-9988. Or email coolfix, all one word, at LOE.org. That's coolfix at LOE.org. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Support for the Environmental Health Desk at Living on Earth comes from the Cedar Tree Foundation. Support also comes from the Richard and Rhoda Goldman Fund for coverage of population and the environment. This is Living on Earth on PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Vatican recently declared that it's becoming the world's first carbon-neutral state, thanks to the donation of carbon credits from a reforestation project in nearby Hungary. The move follows the Pope's call for the international community to respect and encourage a green culture. And nowhere is that call being answered more than among activist Roman Catholic priests and nuns in Central America. In Guatemala and Honduras, Catholic leaders are taking on multinational loggers and mining companies on behalf of the poor, sometimes at the risk of their very own lives. Marilyn Berlin-Snell traveled to Central America to report on this story for Sierra Magazine, and she joins us now. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hello. Now, in your article, you write mostly about Honduras and Guatemala, countries that are, are rich in such natural resources as gold and timber, yet more than half of the population there lives below the poverty line. What's going on? In an effort to get foreign investment, the governments of both those countries introduced mining laws that basically invited uh, multinational companies to come in with very generous tax laws, basically tax holidays, and exceedingly lax environmental laws. So um, these companies have exploited precious metals, uh, mostly gold, and exported uh, the profits to home countries. And um, Honduras and Guatemala have not really benefited from it, at least the people in the, in the highlands, in the villages. You spent a fair amount of time uh, looking at some of the mines. Um, tell me what you saw in the area around the Marlin Mine in Guatemala. The Marlin Mine is in the highlands of western Guatemala, and it's almost 100% indigenous there. When the company, it was a Canadian company, came in around 2003, they offered to buy homes. These people are very poor. Many of them sold their land. But nobody knew what open pit mining was, and they got a rude awakening when the development started. There were blasting entire sides of mountains. Uh, I visited homes that were literally cracked in half because the blasting was happening too close to villages. They took me down to their farming plots and showed me where their sheep and cattle had died because they said they, dr they had drank contaminated water. And this is a huge mining operation. It just, I mean, literally has sheared off entire sides of a mountain. 
Now, what about the logging techniques that are going on in Central America that are causing so much controversy? What did you find when you went to work on the story? When I was in Honduras, I, I went to the department of Olancho, and there a priest named Father Andres Tamayo lives and works. He founded an environmental organization some years ago to try and protect the forests in his region from both illegal logging and logging that is legal but is fairly rapacious because there's very little oversight. And when Father Tamayo took me out into the forest to show me what was going on, it was pretty depressing. The loggers basically use bulldozers to uh, push down anything in their way. Trees are taken from right at the edge of creeks, which contributes to the erosion that causes problems during heavy rains. There's nothing left on the ground. It's so parched because there's no more canopy that very little can grow. What exactly is Father Tamayo? doing, and and, uh, what are some of the other interesting projects that clergy have gotten involved on in this area? Father Tamayo works with communities, with local people to to organize, uh, sometimes get in the street on the highways and block these logging trucks. Um, It's very, very dangerous work. He also works in association with other Catholic groups around the country to, um, right now they're trying to reform the forestry law. And Father Tamayo said he was hoping for some kind of reform within a year. Uh, Could you please describe Father Tamayo for me? In in fact, maybe take me through the day that you visited him. What was it like to be with him? And what, what is he like as a person? I got there, and he was conducting a wedding ceremony in a very tiny cinder block church in one of the villages he presides over. He was clearly a very popular man, quite jovial, and uh, when he came out of the church, he'd changed into an Amnesty International T-shirt. He's on their watch list, actually, and just said, let's go see what they've done to the forest. So he got in his truck with three of his military bodyguards, and he went out ahead, and I followed him in another truck, and we went out to the forest. And fortunately, he didn't tell me until after we came back that last year this was where snipers had tried to kill him and instead killed a colleague that was next to him in the car. He told me that every day, He expected it would be his last, but he didn't have a choice. This is what he felt that he had to do. Basically, what are the goals of the clergy there? What what do they want to see happen? Well, as one of the bishops told me, he wants development, but he wants a humane and sustainable development, which is why he's trying to get rid of the current mining law in Honduras um, so that taxes are increased, so that the benefit goes more to Honduras and less to uh, foreign companies. They want to reform the forestry laws to protect the environment and, again, increase taxes so that the people of those countries benefit and not just foreign uh, multinational corporations. To what extent do you see this in uh, other parts of Latin America, aside from Guatemala and Honduras? Well, in 2005, uh, an American nun, Sister Dorothy Stang, was killed in retaliation for her work to protect the poor and the forests in the Amazon in Brazil. Another bishop from Brazil went on a hunger strike to protest a project to divert river water to wealthy um, agricultural concerns along the coast. And in Peru, a bishop 
has requested scientists to go in and test the blood of villagers near a doe-run um, mining concern for lead poisoning. So those are just a few examples of the Catholic clergy really getting involved on the side of the poor and the disenfranchised when it comes to protecting natural resources in Latin America. Now, if you go back uh, to the liberation theology days in the 70s and 80s, there was a cardinal that came from Rome, his name was Retzinger, to uh, really quash this effort. Of course, he's now the pope. How does the Catholic Church in Rome now consider this type of political activism? I think that's a very interesting question, and I think it remains to be seen how it will play out. But Pope John Paul II, the previous pope, was a fierce anti-communist. The current pope, Benedict, uh, shared these views. Both feared that liberation theologians were flirting with Marxism, godless Marxism. But I think times have changed. As recently as July, the Pope made a statement that environmentalism was a secular path to God. So after this trip, uh, Marilyn, how do you feel uh, about the prospects of, of uh, these priests and bishops and clerics? They seem to be gaining ground in this movement that they have, or is this a, is this a rear guard action? I think they're gaining ground. Uh, they have God on their side. They have uh, villagers who are working in coordination with the Catholic Church to protect precious natural resources. So though it was a little scary traveling with people who had to have 24-hour armed guards to protect them, uh, it was also, in a strange way, hopeful and inspiring. Marilyn Berlin-Snell is the author of a recent article called Bulldozers and Blasphemy in Sierra Magazine. Thank you so much. You're welcome. When Conservation International finished an expedition last year off the coast of eastern Indonesia in an area known as Bird's Head Seascape, the scientists had discovered more than 50 new species, including a number of fish. This fertile ocean region has been hit hard by commercial fishing, as well as by the dynamiting and poisoning of coral reefs, and many of these newly discovered creatures are at risk of going extinct. So, to raise some money to fund a protection project for the area, Prince Albert II of Monaco has joined hands with a conservation group and the Monaco Asian Society to host a blue auction. And on the block at the affair, the scientific naming rights for 10 of these new species. Peter Seligman is the founder and CEO of Conservation International. We hope to raise at least $2 million for the region, and we may exceed that. This is an area that needs financial support. It is an area that is under siege and under threat. What's wonderful is that the government has just decided that their future for their communities is going to be better served if they develop sustainable use of the resources so that we've got a moment when the communities and the government are saying, we understand how important this is. We want to take some action to protect it. We're going to prioritize caring for this landscape and this seascape. Now, how did you come up with the idea for this auction? I was diving in Raja Ampat in the Bird's Head uh, Peninsula in the very eastern part of Indonesia. 
and was with the scientists that work for Conservation International. And we were talking about this juxtaposition of this exquisite diversity and brilliance and beauty of life, and yet the enormous threat to the area. And we just knew that there was a very, very real need for funding to ensure that Indonesians would have the training to be able to uh, protect it. And the scientists said, why don't we uh, auction off the opportunity to name species after yourself? Now, looking at your auction book here, there are 10 species on the block. Tell me about some of these creatures and where they were discovered. I I see one is a walking shark. Yes. Well, first, they were all discovered at the center of a region that's referred to as the Coral Triangle. And it's really the the area that we believe is the richest in terms of marine diversity of any place on the planet. One of the new species, uh, actually there are two new species of sharks that were discovered, are called walking sharks. And they're very small sharks, maybe three or four feet. And they just use their fins, the four fins in the bottom of their body, as feet. You have to really see it to believe it. Now, there are other incredible species that are there. Lionfish, which uh, are lovely to look at with tentacles that stick out from their body, but at the tip of each tentacle is a healthy dose of poison. So that's how they both defend themselves, but also how they capture their, their prey. And there's flashing wrasses, which are these just beautifully colorful fish that when they want to, the males want to attract the females for courtship, they uh, have bioluminescence. They just start flashing down in the deep. I always think of it as a combination of Dr. Seuss and Candyland. <laughs> and they're not so different from humans, and I guess that flashing fish is like the guy in the flashy red convertible at the beach, huh? Exactly the same. Now, what happens after somebody wins a bid to name one of these species? How, how will the fish actually be named? Well, the chosen name, the name of the bidder or the name of uh, the bidder's child or whatever, will be Latinized. And then will be uh, submitted to the uh, International Commission for Zoological Nomenclature through a publication, which is called Aqua, which is a journal of ichthyology or, or fish. And uh, peers will review it, and they will approve it. So um, let's say I had a cell phone company, and the lionfish was the logo. I mean, could I have that name in my company? Could it be the living on Earth cellular? Well, the names are going to be reviewed by a panel, so we'll make some decisions that we find that there is a situation that would uh, be inappropriate. We have a panel that can can vet that. But theoretically, a company could uh, pass the uh, this group and could be approved by this group, and you could end up with the company being immortalized through a naming opportunity. Peter Seligman is the founder and CEO of Conservation International. Good to talk with you. Thank you so much. Talk to you soon. To see pictures of the walking shark and other creatures in the auction, as well as the results of the bidding, please go to our website, LOE.org. At the time of his death earlier this month, at the age of 31, he was working with researchers at Harvard and Brandeis Universities. As a fan who followed his career for more than two decades, Cy Montgomery offers this tribute to Alex, the parrot. When he died, I felt like some folks did when Elvis Presley or Lady Diana passed away. Alex, the African gray parrot, was one of my heroes. Ever since he left the pet store for the lab, Alex had worked with researcher Irene Pepperberg on a monumental project. For most of his life, he studied the English language, and in doing so, 
changed the way humans look at our place as a species in the great order of life. Language was thought to be the sole province of humanity. That we use language and animals don't supported an idea that we were vastly superior and therefore fundamentally different from the rest of animate creation. Of course, once it was supposed that tool use made humans uniquely important, until Jane Goodall discovered wild chimps using rocks as hammers, sticks as probes, and leaves as sponges. So with great interest, I've followed the experiments to see if animals could use language after all. I've been rooting for the animals. First, Wasso the chimp, later Coco the gorilla, learned American Sign Language. Then, dolphins and sea lions learned to touch word-like symbols in syntactical order. There were others, but some linguist or other was always shooting them down. They complained the animals weren't using language as we do. But Alex did. In a voice that any English speaker could understand, he correctly used hundreds of words. He made meaningful requests. He answered abstract questions. He even told researchers to go away when he was tired and asked them to entertain him when he was bored. One time, during an experiment that bored him, he repeatedly asked for a nut, but the researcher ignored him again and again. He figured he had to spell it out for her. So he said, Want a nut? N-U-T. Alex revealed a mind remarkably like ours. His last words, spoken to Pepperberg the night before he died, were these, You be good. See you tomorrow. I love you. Some still claim Alex wasn't really using language. But, I mean, come on. Here he is telling us in plain English that he wants a nut. What could be clearer than that? When Alex spoke, a member of a species more closely related to dinosaurs than to humans was talking with us. And that answered the question, for me anyway, beyond any doubt— Language is not the uncrossable barrier between people and animals, which suggests this great divide between our kind and other species is just something we made up. In speaking his mind so clearly, Alex has done us a great service. He has helped to reunite humanity with the rest of the living world. What matter? Well, it's like a rock. What is it? What is it? Chalk. Chalk, good boy. What shape? None corner. Go pick up none corner wood. What shape? What color? It doesn't have color, Alex. Pick up the none corner wood. Well, that's three corners. Commentator Cy Montgomery is the author of The Good Good Pig, who, by the way, did not speak English. Next time on Living on Earth... Oil companies are eager to tap Alaska's North Slope for its rich oil reserve, but the region's also rich in bird life. You have all of these birds arriving from literally all around the world, and they're there for one purpose, and that is to uh, find a mate and nest and produce young and then get out of there again before things freeze up. Oil and birds, a journey to Teshapuk Lake next week on Living on Earth. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Ashley Ahern, Eileen Belinsky, Bruce Gellerman, Ian Gray, Ingrid Lobet, Emily Taylor, and Jeff Young, with help from Bobby Bascom and Kelly Cronin. Our interns are Alexandra Gutierrez and Mitra Taj.
Thanks this week to Jan Hartley and Nancy Chambers of the Alex Foundation. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Learishteen composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. I'm Steve Kerwood. From all of us here at Living on Earth, thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the National Science Foundation, supporting coverage of emerging science, and Stonyfield Farm, organic yogurt and smoothies. Stonyfield pays its farmers not to use artificial growth hormones on their cows. Details at stonyfield.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Ford Foundation, the Wellborn Ecology Fund, and Pax World Mutual Funds, socially and environmentally sustainable investing. Pax World, for tomorrow. On the web at paxworld.com. PRI, Public Radio International.